Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Douglas Gardner, the former UN resident coordinator for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Hey, Douglas. Greetings, Aaron. It's nice to be with you today. Thank you, man. Happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, given your, your background and uh -huh. what you've been engaged in professionally for many years, you have a really interesting perspective on the situation in Ukraine mm -hmm. and how that relates to the broader uh, mm -hmm. surrounding region of Eurasia. And uh, obviously that's of great mm -hmm. import right now in the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I, I lived in Ukraine for four years. I was there 2000 to the year 2004. It was my home. My kids went to school there. We had a lovely apartment, you know, we knew the coffee shops that, you know, we were residents of Kiev. And the nice thing about working for the United Nations in Ukraine is that I had a chance to travel south to Crimea, north to Chernobyl, east to Donbass, west to Lviv. So I got a chance to really know Ukraine. And it's from that love of the country having lived there and knowing the people and understanding what they're going through with this present war that they're in the midst of, um, that I'm really passionate about how we can help here from Boulder, Colorado or wherever we are. Mm. That's so important. Well, let me just tell our audience a little about your background, Douglas, so that folks Please, have yeah. a little more uh, context. Douglas Gardner grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts and had mm -hmm. the urge to travel from an early age. After graduating from Denison University with a dual degree in economics and English, he scratched that travel itch by joining the Peace Corps for service in Burkina Faso as a well digger for potable water. A subsequent master's degree in international business leading to a job in the three-piece suit on Wall Street with the Chase Manhattan Bank did not cut it. Instead, he found his real calling working for the United Nations Development Program for over 30 years with assignments around the globe in places like Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar, mm -hmm. Mongolia, Ukraine, and New York City. His assignment in Ukraine uh, 20 years ago was the starting point for his present day interest in peace and healing in that country which is presently at war with Russia. Mm -hmm. Working as the director of Occidental Colleges program at the United Nations for eight years prior to the pandemic, gave Douglas a chance to give back to young 21-year-old talents interested in understanding the development process and creating a better world. He is presently the acting director of the Highland Institute for the Advancement of Humanity based in Boulder, Colorado, where you'll also find him hiking, swimming, skiing, and carrying his mat to the next yoga class. Mm -hmm. Douglas wears his biggest smile when his 28 and 26 year old daughters are in town yeah. visiting. And yeah. that's something I can relate to as a father. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you what, before we dive into talking about Ukraine, I have to share that uh, we actually bumped into each other just a couple of weeks ago, um, as we do from time to time around town uh, at a yoga class, which was mm -hmm. uh, a lot of fun. And uh, Douglas, again, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today and, and to be able to speak about this very important mm -hmm topic. So I, I want to just kind of dive right in and, and mention that you have written uh, an article, an op-ed piece, uh, 
providing your perspective on what's needed in Ukraine in this current situation mm-hmm. and going forward in time after mm-hmm. hopefully the uh, war situation is resolved. Give us an overview of what mm-hmm. you're seeing now and what you're hoping to see mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah, well, that op-ed I wrote was basically to add my voice to the puzzle, um, the puzzle of an intractable war, two countries you know, in the midst of a very violent, brutal conflict. And I wanted to expand the conversation beyond which tank and which plane um, to look at non-military possibilities in peace and in healing. So that's, that's where I felt a call where, you know, based on my knowledge of Ukraine, my experience there, and I'm also a news junkie. <laughs> mm. And I follow very closely every day what's happening in Ukraine. I stay in touch with former colleagues there to try to understand what their lived experience is and ask myself, well, okay, what can we do to, to help? And that's what my op-ed is about. What are the, what are the pathways, possible pathways to peace and to healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and would you walk us through some of the points? Because you yeah. basically organized this into six key themes yeah. or, or recommendations, yeah. basically, yeah. right? Let me, let me start by telling you the aha moment that I had, which was when I um, visited Normandy in Western France and, and spent three days literally on the beaches where the Allies had landed. There was a wonderful museum in Cannes, and I really tried to understand what that World War II was all about. And the aha moment I had was seeing how Adolf Hitler had absorbed neighboring countries, Czechoslovakia and Austria in 1939, and then had a full-on attack of Poland, and it started the war. And the only way to to stop that was through the use of force. Um, I consider myself pretty much an anti-war person, Mm -hmm. but I do believe in situations like that of Hitler that force was needed to um, return to freedom to the, to the areas that, that he, he conquered. Um, I likewise, at the same time when I was in Normandy, was thinking about what's going on in Ukraine. Here we have President Putin, who um, has invaded the country in February of last year, unprovoked, breaking all international law, human decency, and norms. And I saw an extraordinary parallel with what started in World War II. He absorbed or annexed Crimea and then went into the eastern area of Donbass in 2014. And he had the full-on invasion of Ukraine in, in 2022. And I saw a huge parallel there. I saw both of them demonizing certain groups. The Hitler demonized the Jews, the gays, the gypsies, mm-hmm. just as Putin has demonized the supposed Nazis in um, Ukraine, which is a pure false falsehood. I mean, mm-hmm. Um, the, the president of Ukraine is Jewish. So uh, the point I'm raising is I had this moment saying, what we saw with Hitler is what we're seeing with Putin. Mm-hmm. So I felt a real desire to engage again with my former country, Ukraine, doing whatever we could to support, and I underline support, the, the um, provision of arms to the Ukrainians to defend themselves to expel the Russians from their territory. I'm, I'm a full supporter of that. But I also wanted to expand the conversation to say, okay, what are the pathways to peace and healing when there are no 
present exit ramps for either party. It seems intractable. In that moment of intractability, what are the possibilities? Where is there hope and what could we be doing? Yeah, you know, from my perspective, uh, getting news from a handful of sources that I pay attention to, it seems like a character like Putin on the world stage mm -hmm. is not necessarily going to lay down arms easily mm -hmm. or uh, relinquish uh, mm -hmm. lightly. And it, it causes a lot of concern, especially given the possibility of uh, things like nuclear weapons uh, mm -hmm. getting uh, used. And I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective, you know, what, what do you make of the the person of Vladimir Putin in his arc as a leader on the world stage. I know that mm -hmm. years ago, earlier in his uh, his authority as a president, he was looked upon as, as being somebody very much in cooperation with the world community and helping to bring the sort of Russian cause forward after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But something really changed in the last few years, at least it seems that way from the news sources I pay attention to, and I'm curious if you have thoughts and insights into what, what leads a person to end up doing what, what we've seen here this past year. Frankly, Aaron, I, I agree with you. I think there's been a progression of him from uh, being a G8 member and negotiating with the other members of the, the G7. It's now the G7 because Russia is out. Um, he, at one point in his trajectory, um, seem to be connecting better with the world. Um, now he is, I consider, you know, history will show him to be one of the most reviled leaders of, of human history. Um, if you look at the present day things that he's doing, uh, Alexei Navalny, um, this extraordinary um, opposition leader is now jailed in Siberia. Boris Nemtsov, um, who was shot in front of the Kremlin in 2015, was also a, an opposition leader. And interestingly, he was speaking out on the war in Ukraine, you know, which started in 2014 when they annexed Donbass. And so I, I was just watching a clip of him saying, why are we doing this in Ukraine? Body bags are coming back. And this was not the present day start. This was back in 2014, 2015. So what I've seen is Putin has no shame mm. in, you know, outing human rights activists, journalists, opposition leaders. And then you heard stories in the past year of oligarchs falling mysteriously from a high floor window. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he uses murder, and this is pure murder, mm -hmm. um, as a, a tool of terror, mm -hmm. of keeping people in line, that if they don't follow his, his rule, they are at risk of, of bodily harm. Um, it also relates back to um, the oligarchs, and they provide him his money, the resources that he needs. And, and so it's, he's a complex character. I don't claim to know him. I'm just reading the tea leaves. You see him riding the horseback with the bare chest. I think there's a bit of, not a bit, but he's a narcissistic element there. Um, and and he's, he's a complex character, and he no longer has the Politburo around him. Okay, back in the Soviet days, there was, I think, 12 men, no women, um, and they sort of kept the, the top guy in line. And if they didn't like him, he would be outed. Um, Putin doesn't have that. He's more like a modern day czar. 
and it was he who ordered the um, invasion of Ukraine, unprovoked, breaking international law. And so uh, I'm, I'm terrified by this guy. And the fact that he also has nuclear weapons is, is a big concern. Absolutely, yeah, and, and to continue the parallel uh, comparison with Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, I know that during the 30s as the Nazis were consolidating power in the Weimar mm -hmm. Republic of Germany that they systematically killed all kinds of uh, not only folks ideologically opposed, but even folks within the Nazi party that might pose a challenge to Hitler's ascendancy and his core group's ascendancy to that total mm -hmm. control of the situation in that country. Mm -hmm. And boy, it's, uh, we, 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 we like to see checks and balances and governance systems mm -hmm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it seems that uh, Putin has successfully done away with the checks and balances that might otherwise ordinarily keep mm -hmm. somebody like him in check. Yeah. And uh, so I, I am really curious to hear from you you know, not that we're going to focus on tanks and airplanes and all of that, but what is your what is your outlook and prognostication in terms of what it might take for the end of the armed conflict to come about? Um, I've I've written about a couple of those possibilities. Let me um, tie up that conversation we had on Putin. Yeah. That um, in his present mode, um, and and different from the days of Hitler. Hitler, the internet didn't exist at the time of Hitler. And there's a possibility of getting more news and information out to the populace. Um, many Russians have left the country. Over a million people is the estimate that don't want to be conscripted, that have fled because their newspaper uh, was no longer permitted to function. So a lot of people have left the country. And my view is that as news gets back to the people in the country, that this wave of popular support that Putin has always had. Mm -hmm. The Russian people have been proud of a strong leader, mm -hmm. but they're not proud of the fact that their son just came back in a body bag, or that their husband is no longer here, or their resources, are, or even their Apple phone is not available anymore because they don't have parts. So I think if, if the light of truth, as I called it, is shined on the situation so that the people of Russia can see it, whether that's on the internet or they hear stories, that this will help in diminishing the popular support for uh, Vladimir Putin, um, that may lead him to say, wait a minute, is this good for me? Maybe I should make a change. Mm -hmm. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the oligarchs will say, this is not good for business. Um, or the military may say, this is not a good war that we're in, and there may be a, a change in the palace guard. Mm. I think that's unlikely, because uh, Putin is such a security-conscious former KGB man, um, and he's, he's very much aware of changing his bodyguards, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's a, there's a reasonable possibility that there would be a change, and if an oligarch takes over, they would blame the war on Putin. And, and sort of use that as the reason for them to pull out. So that shining the light of truth, I think, will be helpful in an internal change within Russia. Yeah, that's very interesting. And other, otherwise, yeah. what if it's not internal? Okay, well, another one um, that I've written about is diplomacy. As a former <laughs> UN staff member, I'm very big on the, on the role of the United Nations. And the UN has had three votes at the General Assembly since Russia invaded Ukraine. 
one shortly afterwards and the other at the one-year point and one in the middle, basically condemning Russia for this unprovoked um, you know, breaking of the sovereignty, the, the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine, and you know, um, insisting that Russia remove its troops. That's been voted on three times by the General Assembly with a supermajority voting in favor of that, 141 countries. And I think that's very important. The UN's a very important stage, not just for that vote and telling Russia what the rest of the world thinks, but also other countries are looking at that, China in particular. China's very concerned about its position in the global south. Mm -hmm. And if they see this is what's happening to Russia and the global south, not entirely, but to, the lar to a large degree is, is castigating um, Russia and siding with Ukraine, I think it's, it's an important message to China as it's considering its role in this war. Are they going to provide support to Ukraine? Uh, sorry, to Russia? Hopefully not. Um, they, they have abstained in the vote. But likewise, they're also looking at Taiwan. So the war in Ukraine that Russia has started is, is an important element of the big geopolitical puzzle of the planet. It's important that, you know, the West, and it's not just Europe and the United States and Canada, but you have Asian countries also chipping in, South Korea, Japan, Australia, um, that this is a, a united effort um, to push against autocracy and stand up for democracy and freedom. That's essentially what this war is all about. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, way that all of this relates to the situation in Africa where so many nations in Europe, in the Americas, and in Asia are really interested in resources and in potentially developing markets in Africa. And it's been interesting to watch how some of the African nations have voted or not voted in the UN General Assembly votes. What do you make of that as things are kind of playing out in that part of the world? Well, I think countries in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America are all suffering as a result of this war through higher energy costs, mm -hmm. higher food costs, and inflation. So this is, this is a war that is impacting the entirety of the global south. Um, they have voted I, in large part with Ukraine against Russia, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. As you know, the BRICS, as they're in this grouping of five countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, take Russia out, and, but the four remaining important countries have all abstained. Um, that's where I think diplomacy of the whole world, not just in that vote I mentioned at the United Nations, but certainly focused on China and India so that they're not continuing to trade with Russia and um, not providing weapons of any sort, but also the, the global south that you're talking about so that they understand what's um, at, at play here, that they will hopefully vote you know, for um, the rules of, the inter of international order the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the UN Charter, you know, that they're all standing up and saying, these things are important. A, a member state of the, of, um, the United Nations has been invaded. Um, this was the purpose of the United Nations. It was set up um, at the end of World War II to stop this invasion of one country of another. And so um, Russia has broken that order. And, and I, it's important that the whole world 
the global south, the north, whatever you want to call it, is cognizant of what's at, at play there. Now, Russia has um, had a very strong um, diplomatic outreach to African countries. The Wagner Group, that um, mm. is a paramilitary force, um, has, you know, in a country like Mali, um, in West Africa, you have Wagner guards, you know, protecting the president and, you know, in the palace guards are Wagner soldiers. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And guess what Mali did in this vote? They voted with Russia. Yeah. So Russia it has lots of ways and means, including its oil, its, its uh, Wagner group, its military support, it has, you know, lots of weapons, that it is playing into this um, decision-making of the global south and that's why some countries didn't want to rock the boat and i think voted um uh, they didn't they abstained their vote was i abstained it wasn't i'm yes I'm, or no but i'm in the middle i've abstained <laughs> the, the the wagner group uh thing has really intrigued me and it, and it also has me puzzling over just how much some of the black market or illicit or sort of extra official channels, uh, different networks of people and different groups have in the way of influence in world affairs. And, um, you know, there's some, some popular Hollywood movies looking mm -hmm. at how arms dealers mm -hmm. uh, and the arms trade ultimately leads mm -hmm. to armed conflict and can blow up to mm -hmm. very large uh, war. And I'm curious from your perspective, having worked through official channels of diplomacy, you know, to what degree, I imagine many of us have, hadn't even heard of the Wagner Group until mm -hmm. this conflict. You know, to what degree do some of these paramilitary organizations end up influencing uh, our, our world? Well, I can tell you, I mentioned the example of Mali. Mm -hmm. In a similar way, the Wagner Group is in Central African Republic and sort of propping up a regime and that's a that's a powerful thing so they have an influence far beyond their numbers and it's it's a it's a political means for russia to expand its influence um, you've also seen i think that the wagner group um, has been empowered by putin to go to prisons mm -hmm. and somebody may be in jail for a 20-year sentence for some crime and they are told listen you come with us for six months and fight with us and we will clean your record and you'll be a free person. Hmm. That's a pretty attractive thing if you're stuck in a jail for a long sentence. And they, the Wagner Group has shown total brutality in terms of using these prisoners um, as basic cannon fodder. The, I read an interview with the Ukrainian uh, military guy who said we refer to them as the zombie soldiers because they come in waves of 20. Um, and, and they're a lot, of, a lot of times just mowed down. And then there'll be another wave of 20. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a zombie group that is just, you know, a body, you know, thing for, for Wagner. And then I also understand that Wagner, um, you know, when, when somebody dies, they don't write to the family and say, you know, your, your son has died and here's the body and here's our payment. But they say the person's been lost in action then they don't need to make payment to the, to the family. Hmm. So it, it's a very malicious, strong force led by Evgeny Prigozhin, an oligarch and a very close friend of, um, of Vladimir Putin. 
They grew up together in St. Petersburg. Um, there was, you know, the, the Bergozin had a food operation and it's morphed into this paramilitary that has having an impact, not just in the Ukraine war, but in countries around the globe as kind of a paramilitary outreach of, of Putin. It's hmm. so fascinating. Well, that, that degree of trauma, just visualizing the zombie soldiers, hmm. you know, I think points us in the direction of all the different severe traumas that people experience in war. And I'm thinking of uh, my grandfather, who I'm, I celebrated mm -hmm. in a ceremony earlier today as somebody who mm -hmm. had great influence on me, and he ended up as a prisoner of war in mm -hmm. Nazi Germany and just barely got out alive at weighing 95 pounds. He was mm -hmm. shot down just, just uh, around Normandy several months before the invasion, really? actually. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he, uh, into his 90s, he lived till he was 99, he had uh, horrifying dreams, you know, it seemed yeah. almost every night. And that trauma was very much with him, although he gardened and walked and did a lot of things in his own life to sort of regulate the neurobiochemistry of, of mm -hmm. that residual experience. And, you know, he was, he was in the military. Of course, you've also got civilians, mm -hmm. uh, male, female, all ages, uh, experiencing incredible horrors and atrocities that, yeah, we might have seen on screen many times but i'm not sure if we haven't experienced it directly that we really know what that might be like and so there's this tremendous trauma of the people in ukraine and of course people all around the world have experiences of trauma in one form or another and we're thinking about you know the current situation and, and hopefully the global community is successful in putting a stop to this aggression, but mm -hmm. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts, Douglas, about what happens after that and what what can be done to help yeah. heal the, the human spirit yeah. going having gone through such things. Yeah, uh, thanks, Aaron. And, and this to me is the primary area where my organization, the Highland Institute, hopes to make a difference, a small, big difference we don't know yet, but you know, on this issue of mental health in Ukraine. Um, the good news is the uh, First Lady of Ukraine, Olena, uh, Olena Zelenska, has been the champion on this, largely for soldiers and their families, but also for, you know, basically the whole population. What we're talking about here is collective trauma, which adds up, you know, person by person by person. It's every Ukrainian has been impacted by this war. Um, the, the impact, the trauma is, is not as, you know, if somebody breaks an arm or gets shot, that's a physical wound. And, and we know we're, we're pretty good at, at healing physical wounds and we understand what that's all about. But, you know, trauma is, is a mental wound that can have as strong an impact as any physical wound. And um, on the bright side of this conversation is that there are techniques, there, there, is, there are evidence-based techniques for dealing with trauma. Um, and they're, they're not complicated. They don't need to be pharmacological. They can be very simple things like soft belly breathing that calms the nervous system. There are lots of additions to that with um, meditation and yoga and or just envisaging or movement, singing, art, dance. Um, our hope at Highland Institute is to 
you know, support the um, use of the, the methodologies and techniques that exist here in the United States to bring those to Ukraine to support organizations that are doing that. We're not going to do it, but um, organizations like the Center for Mind-Body Medicine um, are scaling up their operations in Ukraine. And these are designed to work with um, the health community where you have Psych psychiatric help, where you have psychologists, etc., but also the education. I could envisage teachers in schools working with kids. So um, I, I'm, I'm just picking up on that thread that this this issue of mental health, um, transforming trauma, psychosocial support needs to be a critical ingredient of humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. And this doesn't have to wait to the end of the war. This is something that is, is underway now and needs to be scaled up. Um, it, it, humanitarian support, you usually think of food, clothing, shelter, which are absolutely essential. But this component is absolutely important for not just the immediate term, for the soldier in the trench um, or the, the mother who is waiting for you know, their son to come home from war, or whoever the person is. This is something that can be done immediately um, and once you have those tools and techniques, they're with you for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. and, and those tools and techniques are helpful to us in a variety of our situations in life, right? It doesn't Absolutely. necessarily uh, apply only to severe traumas one might experience in war, but day-to-day uh, -day stress, all these things that show up for many of us can yeah. be uh, very significantly managed and remedied through these practices. It's, it's so yeah. beautiful. Um, I, I wanted to say that um, the United States has some good expertise on that. Hmm. Um, for better or for worse, you know, whether that's from the Iraq War, Afghanistan, or Vietnam, we've spent a lot of time working on that. And my hope would be to train Ukrainians on that. And, and the experience that we've seen working with Dr. Gay Logan here in Boulder, um, she was on a Zoom call with 250 Ukrainian graduate students, you know, who will become potential psychotherapists who are absorbing this. There's, there's a strong demand. And I think this is characteristic of, of Ukraine and Ukrainians is that this is a modern, you know, well-educated, very thoughtful populace that has been brutally invaded and is now looking to get beyond that, you know, to, to expel the invaders. But once that they're expelled, this to me would be a very important element of healing in Ukraine for the long term. Mm -hmm. And mentioning Dr. Logan, you shared with me a, an article of Dr. Logan's that I think we're going to be able to share in the show yeah. notes. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that article? Yeah, um, it was her speech given to the students that she was addressing in Venezia. Um, it shared her experience. And one of the things I wanted to highlight for you um, that happened in World War II, somebody said, you know, what really got us through this were the bunks, you know, in the prison camps, they had other people there. And she had worked in Tibet mm. and spoke about that. And, and basically the, her message is that when you work on uh, transforming trauma in a community, in a group with other people who have gone through it, it really develops a comfort zone and allows mm. you to to get beyond whatever it is that's that's been the the trauma. So um, it's a it's a wonderful um, speech that she gave, and I'm just commending that to your viewers to to read. 
Thank you for that. And yeah. Yeah, this notion of developing a comfort zone within a group, within a community is really interesting. And, I, you know, when we're doing the work that we're doing through the Why on Earth community, um, mm-hmm. we're obviously addressing a number of different <laughs> social and environmental challenges and opportunities that we're all facing together on the planet. And we're seeing more and more groups self-organizing, whether uh, physical in-person groups uh, in a specific geographic region, or also uh, in many cases enabled through technology, groups of people that are dispersed all around the planet. And we're seeing this kind of emerging comfort zone Mm -hmm. uh, pattern that I think is helping people in all kinds of contexts and situations and perhaps we could use more of that uh, yeah. throughout the world and, yeah. and for different reasons and I, I'd love to kind of learn more and hear more from you about yeah. how you're seeing that play out and when you when you recommend things like uh, the United States helping to share some more of its expertise how do you how would you envision that sort of scaling and, and taking hold mm-hmm. and growing roots in a place like uh-huh. Ukraine yeah well um the good news is, is that in Ukraine, in December of, of last year, so relatively new, just a couple months old, they have come up with a national plan, a, a roadmap to psychosocial support so that this is not some foreign concept. This is um, something that has been approved under the leadership of the First Lady, as I mentioned, with support from the United Nations and particularly WHO. So when you have a, a national plan Um, It allows you um, to go much deeper at the provincial level, at the community level, and and certainly if you take the Ministry of Education, if this becomes part of the policy of the Ministry of Education, it's much easier to filter down to schools. And I wanted to share with you and your viewers an example of how change happens in Ukraine. And this is an experience I had 20 years ago on a different topic of HIV AIDS, Mm -hmm. which was exploding in Ukraine. It had the highest rate of um, growth of um, HIV infection along with Russia in the world. Mm -hmm. And the largest um, vehicle for transmission was injecting drug use. Um, And um, it was a big focus of, of ours. Um, and UNDP and the UN system. And we set up um, a program for leadership training on HIV, basically helping people to hold up a mirror. How did they feel about care and compassion? What would they do from their respective perches? And we had a a large group of um, women leaders, about 100 women leaders. And I didn't realize within that group was the daughter of President Leonid Kuchma. And the daughter sat at the dinner table with her dad and mom and was able to open the conversation on HIV. And previously, um, it had been considered a disease of deplorables, Mm. those we don't really want to mess with. Mm. Um, And she was able to, and that was kind of the public position. And she was able to convince her, her, her dad in particular, who much to our delight and surprise, spoke out you know, about care and compassion, about these are our brothers and sisters, I'm, those are my words, but basically opening up the space for the rest of the civil service to, to change their position on HIV AIDS. So it was a small but um, you know, important shift when it, um, when it, and when it comes from the top. So when I heard that the First Lady, Elena Zelenska, 
was getting behind this um, mental health element, dealing with PTSD, anxiety, stress, I said, aha, this is just like that experience I had 20 years ago when the president you know, spoke. It had a huge difference down the line on the civil service. And I'm confident that the first lady speaking out will also have a huge impact on the civil service down the line. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's encouraging. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, Douglas. I want to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting at the Highland Institute's uh, headquarters here in Boulder, Colorado, with Douglas Gardner, the former UN resident coordinator to Ukraine. And uh, want to give a quick shout out to a couple of our sponsors making this podcast series possible. This includes Purium, the organic superfoods company uh, who have offered a very generous discount to anyone in our network who wants to uh, try any of these organic superfoods. I've been using them every day for something like eight or nine months now. Um, you can go to ishoppurium.com and use the code WhyOnEarth to get your discount. Or if you go to whyonearth.org, you go to our partners and supporters page and you'll see uh, Purium there. And also want to give a big shout out to our ambassadors and to the folks who have joined our monthly giving program. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got folks donating a few dollars a month, $5, $9, $20, $70. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast and if you're enriched by the work we're doing at the Why on Earth community and you haven't yet joined our monthly giving program, I highly encourage you to do so at whatever level works for you. And right now we're in a campaign to build our monthly supporter base to 100 people. Uh, it's, it's modest. We're working with a modest budget and uh, everything helps. So thank you. If you would like to set that up, you can go to whyonearth.org and click on the donate page or the support page and get that set up. And thank you so much. And a big shout out to all of our ambassadors. We've got a lot cooking right now in the way of meetups and programming online and in person, and uh, it's a really exciting time. And Douglas, I, I, I really am eager to ask you a couple of questions about your work within the United Nations, what you've done and mm -hmm. so on. And I gotta sort of first frame it by saying that um, as I've done a little bit of work internationally and connected with a number of folks uh, who are based in places mm -hmm. other than the United States, I've observed that uh, to the world community, there, there are some real peculiarities, some real head scratchers about uh, American culture. And uh, I was, as I mentioned to you uh, recently before we recorded, was at a uh, peace and reconciliation conference mm -hmm. in the Balkans. That's where I met David Beasley, the former governor mm -hmm. of South Carolina, who has been running the United Nations World Food mm -hmm. Program. And um, this, doing amazing healing work among a, a variety mm -hmm. of people and ethnic groups that had horrible war back in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, when we're working on issues like climate change, when we're addressing uh, human rights issues around the world, uh, one of the odd things that pops up in many American United States communities is this sort of massive deep distrust of global institutions like the United Nations. You know, folks talk about black helicopters and whatnot. And... I find that especially when we connect personally with folks mm -hmm. from different parts of the world who have gone through these really challenging experiences, have a very different perspective than we might find here mm -hmm. in the United States. It helps me at least develop a more uh, 
complex and nuanced worldview, I think. And I'm curious, having spent so much of your career within an institution like the United Nations, Douglas, um, what's your experience when you encounter that uh, kind of like black helicopter conspiracy theory view that, that some folks here in the United States seem to have? Um, Aaron, thank you for that question. Um, I'm, I'm also perplexed by it. I see the term globalist used as kind of a negative term. Um, but I think once people dig into what the UN is doing, um, and I've been a very proud UN staff member with the blue flag, which, you know, if you look at the blue flag, what's it have? It, it has the, the planet Earth in the middle with olive branches around the side. You know, it's all about peace, and nobody's advocating for war. Mm. Um, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the, the UN Charter, when member states join, they, they put forward their agreement that they will follow this. So for me, the United Nations represents mankind's greatest hope for well-being and being able to live together peacefully, using this planet in a sustainable fashion, um, and you're familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're numerous with lots of indicators, and people say, well, there's much too much there, but to show me something in there that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right? No, we uh, we reference them often in our work, and yeah. there are you know seventeen of them, as you know. And the final one is one of my favorites, which is the uh, collaboration uh, and cooperation among organizations yeah. and people. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I enjoyed most about working in the United Nations, and you mentioned at the start that I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. Peace Corps teaches you to realize that you are a guest in your visiting country you do not necessarily know much more than anybody there. You're, you're, you know, you're just there to learn, to support, etc. So I was able to carry that through in the United Nations and found a home that supported that. When I went to Ukraine, it wasn't me telling Ukrainians what to do. I would work with the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian organizations, and my first job was to be a good listener, yeah. to understand what they were facing, and to then try and bring the best of what the world has done, best practices. Take corruption, for example. Hong Kong had a very successful anti-corruption program. It used to be a, a, very, a very corrupt area, but now, you know, with the Hong Kong Anti-Corruption Commission, it succeeded in, in handling the problem. So I brought the Hong Kong Anti-Corruption Commissioner, uh, Bertrand Despeville, to Mongolia, where I was serving for four years, to Ukraine, where I was serving for four years. So the UN doesn't try and dictate what countries should do. It tries to bring best practices. So as they develop their capacities and their institutions, that they're able to say, hey, I like that. I'm going to try a little bit of that. Um, and that is, to me, the, the beauty of a global community. The beauty of a connected international community where we can share um, across borders and, you know, so that we can elevate this humankind. Um, anyway, just to, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, uh, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of value add that people don't fully understand in the United Nations. It has its problems. It's, it's a bureaucracy. Um, it, it, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's also s staff members from all over the world. Mm. Um, and they need to speak together and they need to work together. And so it's, it's a model of possibility of countries coming together and showing what's possible. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I, I want to ask now, um, tell us a little more about 
your role and roles in, in Ukraine and elsewhere through the UN? And what did that look like in terms of interacting with heads of state and other you know dignitaries as folks were coming together for official gatherings? What did that look like in terms of your on-the-ground work? I it, it seems like you were uh, a, a bridge builder and, and bridging a lot yeah, of different good, worlds good, in good that expression. work. Um, let me use Ukraine since that's since our topic um, is is Ukraine. Um, my job was to look at what are the policies and practices in Ukraine, um, and and just to give you an example, Chernobyl, a, a nuclear um, reactor exploded in 1986 and spewed radioactive cesium and strontium that has a shelf life of 200 years in the surrounding countries, largely Belarus. Uh, Russia and and Ukraine, um, and there were three provinces in Ukraine that were close to Chernobyl, um, and so here we are. At that time, when I was there, it was uh, let's think 15 years later, and um, and people were still in this mode of, uh, you know, I'm sick, and it's related to Chernobyl, and so what we were trying to do is basic development programs to show able-bodied people that they could still work and, and, and carry on in these affected areas mm. um, where people were living in low, do where they had low dose long-term exposure to radiation. And it was, a, it was a, a partnership of those three countries, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, sharing experiences. And, and so that's, that's the true UN, is that it's not just one country, but the three countries work together, and and I, I learned a lot from that. I got a chance to know Russia and the Belarus, and and it also brings countries together. You know, if they have a common problem, and that you know, you, you work a lot on climate change, which is a a global issue, and it's only going to be um, handled or, or improved if there's a global response um, from many nations, and that's where. You know, the accords that have been signed on climate change are very important because they, they represent uh, countries coming together and making commitments. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me, well, wait a minute, how do you monitor commitments? Hmm. Um, well, the nature of the United Nations is that it's peer-to-peer, it's -peer, peer support. You may have 15 countries um, around the table, and um, Cambodia is doing a report on um, the human rights of women in Cambodia, and they, you know, they're just nobody is sort of, uh, you know, saying you're not doing this, you're not doing that. But the peers are able to sort of, you know, look at them and say, wait a minute, you're missing this, you should add this, and that's really the way the countries work. And people see the big building at the United Nations and wonder what the hell goes on there and then those meetings. And that's largely, it's not just New York, it's Geneva, um, it's, it's Paris, it's uh, Nairobi. You know, they're, they're headquartered um, UN organizations around the globe, but they do come together to see as the family of nations what is possible, what needs to be done, and this country needs some support, or this country I have something to share um, my experience with. So that's kind of how the UN works. And it was a great organization to, to be a part of. And when I was in a country, it wasn't just visiting. It was an assignment of four years. So you really had a chance to get to know the language, the culture, the people, the players, mm. and, and do your best and create whatever was possible. We'll have to save a, a couple of my uh, uh, non-pertinent questions for our behind-the-scenes segment that we're going to record after the podcast interview including uh, favorite foods uh, in Ukraine. I'm going to wait to ask that one later. 
Um, but I, I wanted to mention a friend of ours, a mutual friend and colleague, Jonathan Granoff, who's, mm -hmm. who's been on the podcast and uh, runs the uh, Global Security Institute, doing a lot of really important work right now around uh, nuclear non-proliferation and uh, security, and has, of course, also worked with a number of the uh, Nobel Peace laureates over the years, including Mikhail Gorbachev, mm -hmm. who uh, was a very good friend of of Jonathan Granov's. And, you know, what I'm also struck by is that often um, in, in a large country like the United States, when we have folks who aren't necessarily traveling as much or uh, learning from international news and, and connected to friends from other parts of the world, these, these kind of figments of imagination can emerge around uh, good guys and bad guys, quote unquote, good guys mm -hmm. and bad guys around the world. And especially with, you know, one of our board members being uh, from Kyrgyzstan, one of the former Soviet uh, re republics, uh, Artem Nikolkov, who runs Earth Coast Productions, which helps in a huge way to make our podcast series possible. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed having conversations with him over the years about some of the nuances in perspectives around Russian-American uh, dynamics and tensions. And of course, uh, Jonathan Granov's work with M Mikhail Gorbachev is a great example of folks collaborating across national borders and really getting to a human connection mm -hmm. and, and no longer being sort of imprisoned by ideological uh, black and white boundaries. And it seems to me that uh, you know there, there's a whole lot of good that comes from that kind of relationship and collaboration. And I imagine when you work within the United Nations, mm -hmm. that that's something you might even get used to or, or, or sort of think that, you know, that's how the world often works. And, and I'm wondering if you might share with us some of your experience in this cross-cultural collaboration in, in ways you've seen some real breakthroughs and also um, how the real world as you've experienced it might be different from what we see in the mainstream news headlines that are, you know, sort of expert at boiling things down to simplicities that are no longer actually all that mm -hmm. true necessarily. Um, Aaron, um, I, I know Jonathan Granoff. In fact, I was at a meeting with him in Rome um, at, at which it was a small meeting of just about 12 people. And Gorbachev told the story, and this was in Russian with an English translator, of how he developed trust with Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan developed trust with him. And the two of them bonded and went back to their respective um, headquarters, their respective capitals, and were able to carry the day with all of those people saying, don't trust them, don't trust them. And that was the start of some very important um, nuclear nonproliferation treaties. Um, so I, I, I applaud Jonathan Granhoff for the work he's done. And, and um, you should know that he was also nominated to be a Nobel laureate. And the, to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. He was nominated. Um, a story I wanted to share with you was, um, in, again, in Ukraine, when the Secretary General Kofi Annan um, came to visit for 72 hours and was able to host him. And I remember sitting at a dinner table um, with, uh, I was on one, it was a table like this, you know, with Kofi Annan, the Speaker of the Parliament, and myself. And he kind of leaned forward to the Speaker. And this was like a brotherly you know, bit of advice. He said, you know, listen, I work with 190 ambassadors and I have to treat them all equally. 
He said, you've got a much harder job. You've got 430 members of your parliament and you have to treat them all equally. Mm. You know, so he would just sort of, you know, got to know this guy and, and that was encouraging him, of course, to work with all parliamentarians, not to become, you know, separate with your group and, and to disdain mm. the others. So mm. he was a great secretary general and, you know, I have a lot of pinch me moments in working in the United Nations, but, I, you know, at the top of the list was being able to spend 72 hours with the, with the late Kofi Annan, who was one of the greats of the secretary general lineup. Mm. Well, it's wonderful to hear about that. And yet not to, to spring something on you we hadn't talked about beforehand, but I just noticed in the news in the last couple of days, the global community has agreed to a major uh, uh, pr preservation and conservation effort with the world's oceans. And I don't know if it's something you've been tracking closely, but to me, this is another hopeful sign about what the global community can do through a body like the United yes, Nations. Yes, exactly. Now, the law of the seas has been under negotiation, it seems, forever. Mm. Um, and it is under the auspices of the United Nations that this has come together. And, and so, you, as to your earlier question, when people question the value of the UN, um, these sorts of actions are extraordinarily important and I think people are increasingly aware of what's going on in the oceans with plastics, with the loss of coral reefs, etc. This is in the deep sea area, you know, countries reaching agreements. Will there be um, breaking of some of those rules or agreements? Of course there will be, but at least it's, it's moving in a very positive direction and that I think is what the UN hopes to do is to serve as the platform and the basis where countries can come together and the best of humankind comes out in those circumstances. That's so beautiful and I, I was only scanning headlines between meetings in the last couple of days but I saw something like 30% of the mm. deep sea yes. uh, habitat of the ocean is going to be set aside for non-fishing and, and That's for right. the uh, creatures of the ocean to right. to recover in their ecological right. context. Right. Very good. Yeah, I'm not that. Fam I'm not more familiar with it than that. But I mm -hmm. saw the same articles. I think mm -hmm. and feel equally good. Okay, that's great, Douglas. Yeah. So we're we're gonna dive into some other pieces in the uh, behind the scenes segment that is available to our ambassador network. If you want to become an ambassador mm -hmm. and check that out and join with us in some of the other work we're doing uh, in the regeneration renaissance uh, efforts, um, you can do so by going to whyonearth.org and uh, joining the uh, uh, ambassador network through there. You'll find the page in the resources and community section of the website. Um, and, and I do want to ask one other sort of uh, obnoxious, controversial question because it struck me, I, I've enjoyed reading over the years and, and did some uh, political science and international uh, sustainable development mm -hmm. work uh, in school. And, you know, picked up a book by George Soros talking about the, um, the Karl Popper's Open Society. And, mm -hmm. and, and Soros, of course, was impacted by the rise of fascism in Europe that he experienced as a young person. And, you know, from one perspective, it's, I think, a perspective that I have from what I know. Uh, he has done a lot of really good work in the world, in, the, in that part of the world, Eastern Europe and, and mm -hmm. Central uh, Eurasia, and also here in the United States and elsewhere. And he, he's one of these folks, for one reason or another, who has had an, his name so besmirched 
by certain uh, political factions to the point where in, in some circles you mention a name like that and, and people's reactions are, are really extraordinary and surprising. And, and I know you've had some personal interaction with, with him and I'm just curious if you might share with us what a, a man and a leader like George Soros from your perspective has, has been able to do in the world and particularly in that region of the world around Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe uh, that, that you know, some of our audience might not be aware of. Yeah, I want to say that um, my experience with George Soros has been extremely positive. I admire the fact that a man who has um, earned a lot of money, he's made a lot of money, he's a wealthy man, but he's not sitting on his wealth. He's established this Open Society Foundations, which is a global organization with, uh, the number I recall is $300 million a year of his personal money. So he's, he's very invested in um, many issues, but particularly when I was in Ukraine, he had a, a, an organization called the International Renaissance Foundation. <laughs> that was very much focused on democratic governance. At UNDP, we partnered with them on lots of areas. They're very focused on human rights, on building institutions, and so it perplexes me when he's vilified in any way, shape, or form. He came to a number of meetings, regional meetings of UNDP with different countries from Eastern Europe. He was very engaged. A very committed to um, principles and values of democracy and freedom because that's what um, he didn't have in his early days in in Hungary yeah. and he came from oppression and he's now ready to invest in that part of the world in freedom d democracy and the kind of values that that we all support um, and so I, I have very high regard for him I know that he um, has handpicked his people, the president of Open Society Foundations, Mark Malik Brown, was the um, deputy secretary general under Kofi Annan. He was the administrator of UNDP, and I know him to be an extraordinarily remarkable man and very, very competent. And, and uh, George, is, uh, George Soros is uh, getting on in years, and his son Alex Soros um, is getting much more engaged and I think picking up the mantle progressively that his dad carried. So I think history books will show George Soros to be an incredible investor in freedom and democracy around the globe. Um, and I just wanted to add my voice to that, to that, that picture. Yeah, thank you, Douglas. I really I appreciate that. And um, <laughs> I, I want to be sure to mention that uh, you can find more information uh, with the topics about the topics we've been talking about through a number of links that we're going to provide in the show notes. And we're going to have a link to the Highland Institute. You can get to that through the highlandcityclub.com website. Um, we're going to also provide the uh, article, the op-ed that Douglas has written, which is titled From Omaha Beach to Bucha, Ukraine, Pathways Towards Peace and Healing. Um, we'll have that on the uh, site as well under the show notes. And we're also going to provide uh, I think we're going to have a Center for Mind-Body Medicine Activities in Ukraine link. Is that uh, one of the links that we Yeah, it's actually a, a, a Word document. A Word document, yeah, okay. Yeah, so we can put that in PDF. Yep, we'll have that available as well. And are there any, I want to make sure to ask you, are there any other links and or can people connect with you through social media or, or what else? I think else through the Highland recommend? Institute would be the best route. Great. Yeah, and, and we're... we're um, 
a young think tank at the Highland Institute, and this issue of Ukraine is one where we think we can you know, add some real value to the puzzle by giving support to organizations that are there, um, hopefully raising resources for them, and hopefully you know, making a difference on that very important issue of mental health. And we're also, you know, I was on the phone about a month ago with the Soros people on the ground, mm -hmm. asking them, you know, what are the, where are the greatest needs in trauma response? And they said, well, they have a million soldiers, three to four million family members of those soldiers. They spoke also about women who were victims of rape and sexual violence as in need of trauma support, and also law enforcement. Mm -hmm. That is uncovering graves, mass graves. So um, just wanted to, to mention that we're working in present day with the International Renaissance Foundation as well. Thank you for mentioning that, Douglas. <clears throat> and you had also provided me the URL icmhhr.org, the Support Ukraine Initiative. Um, what is that specifically, and is that one of the ways folks can get involved? Yes, and that, help that is the um, organization of Dr. Gay Logan that I mentioned, okay. and she's the one who has that speech that we need to get a PDF on. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're, my encouragement to your viewers um, is to have hope and recognize the possibilities that exist for all of us to be engaged with Ukraine, to be supportive of moving out of war into peace. And, um, and this is one of those modalities for doing that. Thank you. And as far as calls to action go, is there anything else that you wanna encourage our audience to do, Douglas? Well, I'm, I'm um, and we are most focused on this mental health issue, transforming trauma. And um, it's a long-term sustainable practice. Mm -hmm. It's not something, okay, you take a pill for a month and it's, it's over. No, these are practices that people can carry on for a lifetime. And as you said correctly, they're, you know, they're not just for getting over the trauma and, and getting the nervous system back to, to, to good health, but they can be used for issues that, that people face throughout, throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to... Uh, wrap up the podcast here in just a couple minutes and then uh, of course Douglas and I are going to record our short behind the scenes segment um, talk maybe about some Ukrainian food and a couple other things from our uh, podcast interview but uh, before signing off I want to first of all thank you for yeah, my pleasure. joining me today and, and sharing your, your <laughs> very important perspective with me and with our audience and want to give you the floor if there's anything else you'd like to say in conclusion before we sign off in Ukrainian, and you heard this at the end of President Zelensky's speech to Congress, they say Slava Ukraini, which means glory to Ukraine. It was a, a phrase during the Soviet Union days that was outlawed. It was used by the Ukrainian nationalists. So um, Slava Ukraini. Um, I just want all of our Ukrainian viewers to know that we are with them in solidarity and we're praying for peace and healing. And I'm, I'm happy to have had this opportunity, Aaron, to talk a little bit about Ukraine. Thank you, Douglas. <laughs> it's wonderful visiting with you. Really appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Yeah. See you, everybody. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. 
Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.